Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today's episode is a little bit unique. We're talking to Ed Robertson. Ed is the host of two podcasts, Mountain and Prairie, as well as the Ranchlands Podcast. Uh, Mountain and Prairie is one of the first shows I ever really got into. This was way back in probably 2015, 2016, right around when the show got started. I was looking for a podcast. I, this new thing I discovered, and this was one of the first shows I really started listening to. And it was all about conversations about the American West. I had just moved out there. I was looking for uh, just to learn more and learn more about the landscapes and the people and the artists and the the conservation of this land. It's always interested me. And Ed's show was really helping me learn so much about things I had never even thought of in perspectives to look at this area that I was quickly falling in love with pretty much everything from the Rocky Mountains uh, all the way to the coast out west. And I loved Ed's story because he, you know, what, what, what really captivated me early on was his southern accent. He's from North Carolina, as we'll hear, um, but he quickly just became a huge inspiration to me. So this is a huge honor to be able to talk with him years in the making. And I kind of geek out in this episode a little bit, and, I, and, I don't, and I'm not ashamed about that, but we really just talk about his career trajectory in this episode. So we dive into how he was pursuing real estate development initially and completely did a 180 because if you know about that, that's that. those are the folks that are taking a big piece of land and turning it into like 10,000 houses. Uh, he was wanting to do that and trying to do that out west quickly learned the errors of his ways and is doing the opposite now, trying to conserve as much land as possible and launched a podcast to do that. Well, this has just taken over his life um, in a good way and taught, you know, brought so many amazing opportunities from panel discussions that he's hosted, all sorts of interviews that he's done with just people he'd never imagined talking to and also in-person events that he now hosts all over the West. Just really enjoyed talking to him. I hope you learned something. I think there's something here for everybody, not just me, who's been a big fan of Ed. And also, I was hoping he would promote this episode, but funny enough, just like last week I saw on LinkedIn, he's like, hey, if you're reading this, you cannot get a hold of me for the next month. I am intentionally getting away from all electronics, all posting, all notifications of any kind, even on his phone, for the next month. And so I was like, dang it, he's not going to be able to promote the episode next week. But also, I'm like, that's actually even cooler to talk about, is these are the kind of things that Ed likes to do and introduce into his life. He, he definitely lives the strenuous life that you know folks like Teddy Roosevelt talked about a lot. So if you want to check out his podcasts, go to mountainandprayer.com uh, or just anything in the show notes. I put a lot of links in there. Check it all out. I love the show and I uh, hope you do too. Enjoy. Folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today is a, a very special episode. I think this is more like personal interest than it is like an adventure sports story. <laughs> so, but Ed and his podcast has been so inspiring to me over the years. I, I was listening to you, Ed, before I actually hosted this show. I think our shows got started around the same time, 2015. Yeah. Um, but I didn't start hosting until 2018. I was a guest on the show a few times, and then I took over. But I was listening to you when I first got into podcasts around 2017. So, man, this is a huge honor, and, and it's going to be a little different than normal shows. But welcome to the show. Oh, man, thanks. And I appreciate you being a, such a longtime listener. It's 
I say it, I think people think I'm joking, but it's like, I, I just can't believe anybody other than my mom listens to the thing. So the fact that you that you listen and that you've been doing it for a long time and hadn't gotten sick of it, I really appreciate it. I'm glad to finally connect with you. We've, we've emailed and been in touch for quite a while, so it's awesome to get to chat with you. Man, that's so funny you say that. Just yesterday, I interviewed someone for the show, and they said, oh, man, I've been listening for years. And I'm like, yeah, everybody says that because they try to, you know, scratch your ego a little bit before getting on the show. And some some of them have to be telling the truth, but it just blows my mind, too. I'm like, there's no way you've been listening that long. Who would listen? Like, I don't yeah. <laughs> I know so, the feeling, man. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Funny. I want to ask you first. This is not standard, but how many people want to put a T in your last name? Robertson. It's Robertson. Oh, how it's often Robertson. does that happen? Uh, I, I want to put a T in my name. <laughs> Because people look at it the way it, it looks like Roberson, but it's pronounced Roberson for whatever reason. And uh, so they either want to put a T in it or they want to say Roberson or whatever. And I'm like, man, I should just do the world a favor and just legally change it to Robertson. Yes. But uh, we're, we're kind of locked in at this point, I think. I, I will not make this a show about my stories, but gravely. Gra- oh, yeah. is often gravely. Uh, gravely. I mean, E-L-Y versus L-E-Y. It's just like, I might as well change it to E-L-Y at this point. But <laughs> Ed, uh, the, the actual question I usually ask people is, where are you coming from? And is that home for you? Because oftentimes with our guests, it's not the same place. They're out on an adventure or they're halfway around the world doing something or they're just, you know, they don't have a home. But uh, where is home for you and where are you right now? Yeah, so I am in Colorado Springs, Colorado. That's where I live, and that's where I am right now. But from this accent, you can tell I'm not from Colorado originally. I grew up in eastern North Carolina. I'm in a really small town uh, called Tarboro, but I've been out west uh, since 2005. So, But my accent has not gone away. Oh, wow, man. I have a very good friend in Ahoski, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right down the road from where I grew up. That's amazing. Yeah, he's a farmer too, actually. And so I, I used to uh, do a lot of bike touring and I went and saw him on a cross-country ride and uh, I, I stayed there for three days and we fished and I helped him on the farm and it was just one of the best experiences of my life. But my family's originally from Asheville. Um, That's so... where I got married, in Asheville. Oh, okay. Very cool. I love Very Asheville. Cool. Technically Brevard, if you've ever heard of that town. Oh man, when I was in grad school, I pretty much, li- like on the weekends, I've lived at the Davidson River campground. Like every single weekend I'd go and I'd, if I wasn't going to DC to see my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, me and my dog, our base camp was the Davidson River campground. And so I'm sure you know that place. And we just, uh, I mean, that was hiking, fishing, running, mountain biking. I mean, that, that's, that's like my home away from home. So yeah, I, I know it well. I love Brevard. Oh man, that's so cool. That's yeah, that is right. So my my family had a house in Penrose that backed up right to Dupont State Forest, and uh, yeah, I want to hear about you. So you grew up in North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, and uh, you had this like this desire to be out west. Where did that come from, and how did you eventually take action on that? Yeah, it was kind of always around. I mean, I grew up just loving all the outdoor stuff. You know, like anybody, you know, or like most kids that probably listen to this podcast they you know when they were kids they played outside and just building forts and riding bikes and all that kind of stuff and um at some point I kind of got obsessed with the west um and just the big mountains but I'd never been out there my dad and I when I was in 10th grade we did a trip to the Grand Canyon which kind of opened my eyes to like really really big landscapes and then when I was a rising senior in high school, uh, where I went, the, the place where I went to high school sent me out to the upper Arkansas Valley in Colorado 
um, kind of between Buena Vista and Leadville for a leadership retreat. And um, we did camping. We hiked up, Mike, uh, hiked up Mount Yale. We did whitewater rafting on the Arkansas, the whole deal. And that just kind of woke me up to what was available out west. But I went to college in North Carolina and I was really, you know, I, I really wanted to be out west, but I think I just wasn't um, either tough enough or I, I was too much of a homebody or whatever. I just didn't know that that was really an option. I took myself too seriously just to either go to college out west or when I graduated just to move out west. And so it just became more and more of a um, kind of an obsession thinking about being out west and I, you know, reading a lot about it, I was obsessed with Outside Magazine, you know, the, all, kind of all the stereotypical stuff. And um, I finally, when I was 27, um, I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina, doing commercial real estate. And I was just got so tired of it. And 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 it was kind of a combination of being tired of, of that life and that career and traffic and all that stuff with also wanting to be out west. And so I, I got a job in the real estate business in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So I picked up and drove out west. Me and my dad drove out. He he flew back. And then next thing you know, I found myself living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I feel like that's kind of when I, it's just kind of like I woke up at that point <laughs> and just is surrounded by the awesome landscapes and the flora and the fauna and the big mountains and the crazy weather. And I just, I just loved it. And, you know, I went back east for grad school and then lived abroad for a year. But otherwise, I've been out here since then. The, the abroad experience, where, where was that? Yeah. So, um, when I moved out West, I did not have a girlfriend, I had a dog and that was it. And, um, and so, but then I mean, it's the craziest thing in the world, but I, so, um, December of 2006, I was flying back to North Carolina for Christmas and I had a layover in Dallas, got on the airplane in Dallas and then the we sat there on the runway for like an hour, and then the pilot got on. It was like, all right, the plane's broken. We got to get a new plane. Everybody needs to get off. And I was like, God, man, what the? And I was all, you know, all angry and everything, just like, oh man, I'm gonna be late, blah blah blah. And I, so I sat down in the waiting area, and then like 15 minutes later, this really pretty girl sat down next to me, and we started talking. And now that girl is my wife. <laughs> Yeah. So I randomly met my wife in the Dallas airport and it was weird enough when it was just like, Hey, I met my girlfriend at the Dallas airport, but now we've got two kids and there's humans on this earth because of that chance meeting. So anyway, she, um, we were both in the process of applying to grad school at that time. We both ended up going to grad school, um, from 07 to 09. And she, her, her kind of specialty at that time was international development. And, um, I was in the real estate business. And so we got out of grad school or we're getting out of grad school and, and the economy crashed, you know, the recession. And so there was really no great opportunities in the real estate business. And my wife, uh, then girlfriend or fiance had always wanted to live abroad and work abroad, but we just had kind of thought, well, it won't work with my career. But we just decided, I, I had like kind of a, a bad health scare during business school and and just, yeah. And then the, then the economy collapsed and it was just kind of this, weird moment. And we just decided like, well, let's, let's just go. Let's, you get a job in, you know, wherever you can find a job internationally doing what you want to do and let's go try it out. And, um, and so we moved to Costa Rica. She got a job with a, a, a school down there, kind of in the Northwest corner of Costa Rica that, um, is about half expats and then half local students. And they provided 
scholarships and financial support for all the local students and really a really amazing place. And she got hired there to do some of their development and kind of helping get the school going. And so I went down there. I think they call it that, that type of relationship is called a trailing spouse. <laughs> so I was the trailing spouse and uh, went down there and I was 31 at the time. And it was really just an amazing formative experience for me at age 31 because I'd never really been out of the country other than I went on a climbing trip in Argentina one time. But like I never... I hadn't had, didn't have any experience living internationally in a different culture with where I was the outsider. And it was really an amazing experience. And I, I think it's one of the most important experiences I've had just to let me see the United States from the outside. Um, that's when I kind of got obsessed with reading, um, when I was down there in Costa Rica and, uh, I learned to surf and I surfed almost every single day. And it's just a, just a really awesome experience. Um, and I'm so glad it happened. I'll be honest. I didn't know much about that. And it seems so different than what you do now, as far as the location and the, and the climate that you existed in, you know, being, being the outsider in a lot of ways and also uh, following your wife. Where was she from, by the way? Did you mention that? So she was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but grew up in North Carolina. Her dad uh, got a job when she was a little kid in North Carolina. So, so y'all she, are both she, North Carolina people. Yeah, she, she doesn't have the accent like me. She's from the big city. But, uh, I'm sure that's what it, it was the initial attraction. Was uh, Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it was, um, yeah, so she's, uh, yeah, she's North Carolina um, since she was in about first or second grade, I think. That's a formative time, but also at that age, you're not a child. You know what I mean? Like that could have, at 31, you could have definitely like, I, I feel like it did change your trajectory, but I felt like there's a possibility you stay down there and not come back or, or, or dive deeper into this, or she finds more of a career path in this somewhere else. What eventually brought you back? And how do you think that experience changed you? It sounds like, I mean, reading's a huge part of your life, did, and it started there, but w- what else? Yeah, it it definitely changed me when I, you know, when we moved down there, I was I was really in a big transition uh, as far as, you know, personally, professionally, all that kind of stuff. So, I went to business school. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy to say this now cuz my job now is conservation and and this podcast stuff that's got a big conservation angle to it, but I went to business school with the sole intent 100% focused on being a real estate developer. Like I, when I had been out in Wyoming, it was during the boom of the real estate market. I worked with a lot of real estate developers, a lot of real estate investors. And it was during this time, you know, 05, 06, when you couldn't lose in the real estate market. So all these people were coming out there and buying up these big properties and doing stuff that I know now is off is, is really bad for the most part, subdividing ranches, cutting them up, putting in golf courses, all that kind of stuff. And, but I, I just saw how much money those guys were making. And I was like, these guys don't seem that much smarter than me. I, I want to do that. I want to do what they do. I don't want to just be selling these ranches to them. I want to be developing them. And so I was like, What's, how can I do that? All right, I'll go to business school. So I applied to business schools, got a full scholarship to business school, went. And I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I got an internship. at, at I got this fancy internship in Washington, D.C. at this big publicly traded real estate development firm. And so I'd actually... I'd actually gone up to Alaska, tried to climb Denali, had to get, uh, had this crazy experience where I ended up having to turn back and I could see the summit, had to turn back, came back. I was just kind of really destroyed from three weeks on Denali and the 
pretty insane experience up there. And then I got back and I felt, and so I started my work at the, at the, um, at the real estate development company and I felt a lump where there's not supposed to be a lump. And I went to the doctor and they're like, yeah, you, you got a tumor in your testicle. You got testicular cancer. And, um, so I ended up having surgery, the whole deal they did. They, they did the test and it turned out that the tumor was benign. So I got all the benefit of having the shit scared out of me without um, having to go through chemo and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so anyway, that just started this process of like, man, I don't know if I don't know if I want to be a real estate developer. You know, those guys are doing um, not doing good stuff for the landscape out there. They're they're messing up the for messing it up from an ecological standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, and then the whole economy collapsed. And so that was kind of what the stage was set when I moved to Costa Rica of kind of confusion about what I want to be doing, what should I be doing, and um, and so it was really just a kind of a way to reset. Um, and you know, I'd had some money saved for my time selling, selling those big ranches. And my wife was obviously making money and I spent a lot of time volunteering with different organizations, like teaching kids how to speak English. I surfed a lot. Um, but to be honest, like it was, it was really cool and it's cool looking back, but it was in a way it was kind of a challenging time. Cause I, I have to have a lot of stuff to do and I have to have a lot going on. And I don't, I realized down there that there was just not enough going on. Um, and I needed more engagement. And initially we thought maybe I could do something in the real estate business or, or, or get, get a job down there. But after a year, we had kind of had our fill of it and it was an awesome experience, but we were both ready to get back. So we moved back to Colorado. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I am a, I am a much different person because of that time in, in down there in Costa Rica and I wouldn't trade it for the world. It, it seems like it's a requirement to go through things like that to then set your life on, on the ultimate path that goes on. You know, I know you're a huge fan of Teddy Roosevelt and of course he had those, some enormous challenges with mother and wife passing away same day, John Muir, someone else that we admire that, that went blind from an industrial, you know, that life's on a certain trajectory, something terrible happens completely changes it. And then there's almost this rediscovery period, you know, for John Muir, it was a walk from, his home to Florida and then ultimately found his way by ship to California for TR. It's going out West and basically just living a strenuous life for everybody. It seems like there's something for you. It was that cancer scare going to Costa Rica, realigning, discovering these things that are laid the foundation. Where do you think you'd be without that cancer scare? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. If you know me, you know that I love the Florida Wildlife Corridor. What is that exactly? That is a network of contiguous lands that are connected that go all the way from the Everglades up to the Georgia and Alabama line. It's a continuous network of lands that animals use for migration. It encompasses nearly 40% of all of Florida, which equals 18 million acres. The good news is over half of that is already protected through conservation. The bad news is the other half, just under half, is threatened by roads and development. So the time to save this land is now, and that's why Live Wildly is so important. Live Wildly is an initiative to help bring awareness to and help folks take action on helping protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor so that we can ensure that Florida doesn't get 
totally developed in the coming decades. And Live Wildly's goal is to raise that public awareness to support the conservation of this Florida wildlife corridor. Because protecting corridors like this are not just good for the environment, it's crucial for the entire state's economy, local business, and ecotourism. You can follow them by looking up at LiveWildlyFL across all social media platforms. Go to LiveWildly.com for updates and how to enjoy and how to explore the corridor. Or reach out to me if you want to go on one of my paddle trips. I put one together every 8 to 10 weeks, and all of them take place within the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And I can't thank them enough for supporting this podcast because it's something that I spend my free time promoting. So thank you so much, and be sure to check out LiveWildly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I don't know, man. I mean, I... Yeah, it's hard. I, I mean, it's I, obviously hard to say, but yeah, you, yeah, do you yeah. think I mean, your mind would have shifted so drastically? Well, I, it's funny because so many things happened at once. So there was the, you know, the economic collapse, the, the cancer scare, and then the most important aspect was that I, I was dating my now wife at that point. And I, I really do credit her with really um, making me re-examine things um, and really, you know, she, in a way, not in like a bullying way or a condescending way, but she would make me, if I'd say something, some opinion I had, whether it was a political opinion or just some thing that I would say, she would question me on it. And so I think having her around forced me to really think hard about the way I thought about things and what my goals were. And I'd just been kind of following the normal path of, of somebody from Eastern North Carolina and who went to the schools that I went to and all that. And you kind of just go get a job and you, you know, a lot of people do commercial real estate and it's pretty cool. And you're of a certain political, you know, um, persuasion. And, and then the more I hung out with my wife and, and kind of was forced to examine all these different parts of myself um, I, I, I started changing. Um, and I'm not saying that I got it figured out or that I'm right <laughs> about anything, but, um, you know, I, I don't, it's kind of a good story. Uh, it makes for a good story with the whole cancer scare. Cause that was a big turning point, but it was not at all the kind of thing where, you know, they, they did the surgery and I come out of there and then I'm a new man. And I'm like, ah, I mean, it was kind of a, a mess for a while. Cause like I went back to business school that second year. And I was not into it. And I would start like arguing with the teachers and stuff. And, uh, you know, it was as the economy's collapsing and like, they're sitting there saying, this is how the global economy works and blah, blah, blah. And this is how you, how you do a, you know, this is what a credit default swap is and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, and, and meanwhile, I'm looking on my computer and Lehman brothers is going out of business. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Like, like, like this is not this. And I, I would, I just kind of realized like a lot of the system was not as they were teaching and there's an education in that, but I I just didn't have much patience for the the nonsense. And I just was not, I kind of was not a a pleasant person to hang around (laughs) because I wanted to argue about stuff. And so it's not at all like, uh, you know, like I, I had that scare and all of a sudden I was enlightened I mean, it, it really took, it, it was the probably the beginning along with several other things that forced me to go through a really rough patch of self-examination and trying to figure out, all right, what do I really think about things? What do I really want to do? How do I really want to spend my time? And, but if I had to say like what the main factor was that led to that, it was my wife. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm super lucky, man. Like if I, I mean, I don't know what, what my life would be like if I hadn't sat down on that specific chair in the Dallas airport. Um, That's so crazy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
for you, so so your this changes over time. I don't think your mind had switched fully to like a mindset of conservation and working in that sense. And and when did that start to come about? Because it sounds like you still weren't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, you know, I had to make money, and right, um, right. and so we we moved back to Colorado. My wife got a job in international development, and I was like, all right, I know. There, there are a few things I'm good at and I'm, I'm decent at real estate and I've got this business education. So I'm going to continue working in real estate. And thankfully I didn't have any debt because I'd, I'd gotten a, a full ride to, to business school. So I, I really had a lot of opportunity, you know, opportunities to kind of do what I want to do versus like, all right, I have to get a job right now. Um, and so I, I, I kind of went back into the brokerage business selling these big ranches initially on my own. And then I joined up with a really great group out of Denver um, called Murr Ranch Group. The guy who runs it's named Ken Murr, and he's he's very conservation-minded. And he's legit conservation-minded, unlike a lot of these, a lot of those folks who say it, but they're, they're not really. Um, and so I was still doing the real estate thing, but I was trying to focus on the conservation side of things. And I, I had some success with that. Like I worked with, uh, one of my clients was Crested Butte, uh, ski resort out of, you know, they're in Crested Butte before they got bought by Vail. And they had some land at the base of, um, at the base of their mountains called Snodgrass Mountain for people that are familiar with it. And we had that thing, um, listed and were able to get it sold to the Crested Butte Land Trust who put it under conservation easement and put a perpetual trail easement up through Snodgrass Mountain. So this was a piece of property that was slated to be maybe like 15 home sites, and they were able to buy it and make it a trail forever, and that was awesome. And then I did some some other stuff in Eagle County, um, but but was able to really focus in on the conservation side of things. But at the end of the day, when you're in the brokerage business, like you have a fiduciary duty duty to serve your client. And so, like there was this one deal I had, and this big beautiful ranch that was slated for 113 home sites, and we were able to get it sold to a conservation group, which was awesome. But if a developer had come along and paid more and it would have been my duty to make sure that that deal happened. And then that beautiful Valley in Brush Creek Valley outside of Eagle, Colorado would now have 113 homes on it. And so I realized like, I just, I, I was more interested in the conservation side of things than I was in the deal making side of things. And Throughout all that time, I'd been you know networking with a lot of different conservation groups. I was doing some consulting for different conservation groups, and I was on the board of a conservation group here in Colorado Springs called Palmer Land Conservancy. And um, eventually, just decided like, man, I really want to be doing the um, the conservation stuff. And I saw some of the really cool conservation work that was happening at Palmer, and I asked the executive director like, hey, would you have a use for somebody with my skills? And she said yes. And so I worked there for four years as conservation director, managing um, some some of their really innovative water conservation work. And then I just quit um, in June of last year to focus all in on the podcast. But um, oh man, and, yeah, and it's I mean I love that conservation work, and I felt like I was good at it, and it was important. But the the podcast had just gotten to the point where I had to make a decision and. I've always, I've got a little bit of entrepreneurial streak and I feel like the podcast is making the world a little bit better as well. So I, I chose that, but I would, you know, Palmer does awesome work. I, I fully endorse everything they do. Okay. Podcasting 
does not seem like that's never you never hear this this that that quote you just said. Yeah, I just decided to go fall in on podcasts. You're a dad. <laughs> you've got, you know, responsibilities. You've you're you're in a stage of life where that you're just heavy with probably the heaviest. That, yes. that you know, a peak responsibilities already took a step in a lot of people's minds in the less financially lucrative direction by focusing not on just real estate, but like like conservation transactions specifically. Now you're taking a step even further in that direction by between, you know, the fork in the road that is and going full into podcasting. What led to that decision? What gave you the confidence? One, what was the conversation with your family like? And you, you just how did you process this is the right decision? Yeah, well, ultimately, I mean, it's, it's it'd be real cool just to be like, I, fe- I felt like I just needed to do it. And I just do- dove in and like, yeah, maybe, but like, I got to make money. You know, we lived in Boulder for a long time, um, for about seven years. And when we moved to the Springs, that's when I decided to go into the nonprofit world. Because I was like, oh, man, like Colorado Springs is the kind of place where the, the cost of living is is regular. You know, Boulder is just insane and crazy. And so you can't take your foot off the gas as far as money making. But we got here and I was, looked around. I was like, oh, I could go work in a nonprofit. And it still pencils out is financially for my family. You know, I did that when we moved to the Springs. And then the, the podcast had just started generating enough income from a lot. And it's not just I, I don't I don't sell ads. And so it's, it's kind of, I've kind of got a different model or a different way I go about doing it, but it's like, there's revenue from the podcast, there's revenue from Patreon, there's revenue from speaking engagements, there's revenue from events, there's revenue from partnerships with, with like-minded brands. Like there's all these different revenue streams and it made, and then I produce, I, I, I kind of co-created and now I host a, another podcast for another organization. And so there's like all these different revenue streams coming in that, it worked financially to be able to stop working at the nonprofit and go in on this. But more importantly, like the trajectory, if you, if you look where it's all going, all signs point that it's growing and that it's a good thing to be doing. And it seems to add value to people's lives. And so like it's, uh, it made sense financially to do it, but also there's, uh, uh, there's an upside, I think, um, just from a business standpoint, but, it, but also, I mean, there are a lot of businesses that do that, but like, I really enjoy, I really enjoy it. And I feel like it's making a difference and it really seems to make a difference in people's lives. So it's almost like it's doing good, but there's, it's also a pretty, it's a cool business that has a lot of upside from a business standpoint. And I feel like that's kind of a sweet spot that's hard to find, uh, you know, something that has financial potential, but also seems to be making the world a little bit better. And and I would also say that you're not you don't know what's around the corner with it. Whereas maybe continuing with Palmer or just that line of work, you kind of know what you're in for. For yes, you just repeating the same thing. Like it's amazing work, but it, you know what you're going to get ten years down the road. This to me, man, because that's a question I want to ask. It's farther down my list, and but I'll ask it now. It's like it sounds like it feels like just from outside looking in. This has opened up doors you never thought would be opened. Oh yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing. So two things, there were already all these doors that had opened that were, it was surprising to me and like, especially a bunch of different events with travel that it really just would not have worked to have a full-time job um, and be able to do these events that I had like a week long retreat at the Zapata Ranch. And then like, I had a bunch of um, live podcast stuff, you know, travel, like one in LA, one in Texas, Uh, just a lot of 
travel that just wasn't compatible with, with a full-time job, which, you know, that's just how it is. Um, but then what I found was that when I, when I went all in and just said, all right, I'm going to do it. All of a sudden more doors started opening up. And, um, and what people need to understand though, is like, I'd been doing the podcast for six and a half years at that point. Like when I, when I stopped. So it's not like, it's not like I started the podcast and then a month, you know, six months later I did this. I mean, I, I had a pretty solid, solid foundation and solid connections, but, um, yeah, but just, you know, all these opportunities kind of seem to open up when I fully committed to it, which is cool. And it's by no means like set, uh, you know, hopefully I won't be talking to you, talking to you a year from now being like, oh, I had to go back and get a real job, <laughs> but it's the trajectory is where it needs to be for my family. And, um, and I'm working my ass off, man. I'm working harder than I ever have, um, which is, which is exciting. Yeah, you know, you quit your nine to five so you can, you know, go into business for yourself and now you work twenty four seven. So Yeah, that's exactly. How it works. Well, that's the thing is like I, I figured, oh man, I'm gonna have all this time to finally be able to get everything done. Cause I'd been working on Mountain and Prairie at night, you know, for years, nights and weekends. And uh, other than like the occasional recording episodes, I, I would do that during the workday, but otherwise like doing it all at night and I was like, Oh, I'm gonna finally be able to get all this stuff done. And pretty quickly, like I still don't have enough time. But it's I'm getting a lot more done than I did, but it's still, I mean, it's just one of these things where it never ends, but, but I really, really like it. And so I'm, I'm willing to work that hard on it. And it's, um, it really is a privilege to be able to do that. Um, kind of do my own thing. Well, I, I kind of want to go back cause that's, I do the show nights and weekends right now and, or have been for four years. Yeah. You know, let's, let's actually go back a little bit. Why did you start the podcast in the first place? What was, what was missing and why, why did you feel that this needed to exist? Mountain and Prairie, by the way, we haven't even mentioned it. Folks will hear it in the intro, what it is, but why did you start it and what was the goal? Yeah, kind of, kind of several different things going on. So I was in the real estate business then, um, drive, you know, a lot of driving, like I said, Crested Butte Mountain Resort was one of my, um, bigger clients since I was always going to Crested Butte. So I was always listening to podcasts and I'd been listening to podcasts for a long time. Like I, I used to listen to them. I listened to them in 06 back when wow. I like you downloaded on your computer, then put it on your iPod. That's when plug people your were iPod. still finding the internet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you put the iPod, I had to hook the iPod up the tape player in my car. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, um, so anyway, I, a bunch of podcasts came out like, you know, Tim Ferriss. I would listen to Tim Ferriss a lot and different interview. Rich Roll was doing them back then. And I just, and I just thought they were so interesting and I learned so much from them. And I remember thinking, well, I, I know a lot of interesting people and I go to, I would go to lunch with people all the time, just had these great conversations. And then it would just, you know, you have the conversation and it's over. And I remember thinking, all right, well, I kind of inhabit this weird position in the American West. I'm not from here. But I, I operate in all these different worlds. So like one day I'm out hanging out with a rancher. Then the next day I'm at a, you know, training for an ultra marathon. And, and I know a lot of people in the ultra endurance world. And then I do a lot of mountain climbing stuff. And then I love reading and I love art. And I just, like, if you think about the Venn diagram, there were all these different kind of circles. And in the middle was me and all these kind of crazy interests that, that maybe didn't seem like they they lined up in any way, but I was like, I bet if I had people on a podcast, it would be halfway interesting. And even if it's not, then I, but I, it means I get to have these cool conversations. So I just, 
I went to Best Buy and bought the cheapest microphone they had and plugged it in to my computer. And I called up five of my friends and who I already knew and was like, hey, I'm going to start this podcast. Can I interview you? And just started doing it. And um, I kind of committed in my brain to put out an episode every other week. But I never committed to that publicly. Not that it mattered because nobody was listening. Um, yeah. And now I'm now I'm probably on like every 10 days or so. But anyway, I um so I just started it and, um, and really not many people listened and, but I, I, I really enjoyed it and I got good feedback and it was between enjoying it and, and getting good feedback every now and then. Um, I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I really do credit the podcast with giving me kind of the, the courage or the perspective or whatever to, to quit real estate and go into the nonprofit world. Cause I mean, obviously it had to work financially, but, but also, um, you know, I, I realized I was probably two and a half years into the podcast when I um, when I went over to the nonprofit world, and there was a point where I realized that everybody I talked to on the podcast, you know, some of them were multi, multi, multi millionaires, and some of them lived in their car, but not a single one of them ever said, "I'm doing this work because I want to make a lot of money or make the most money possible." They're doing it because they're obsessed with it and because they love it. Whether you're talking about New York Times bestselling authors to different you know professional athletes. And, um, and I, I think seeing those people and forming relationships with those people is what made me kind of finally step away from just, just chasing money to trying to do work that really, really mattered to me. Um, and so I, you know, like you said, you, you the questions you're asking, you, you want to know you're interested in, and that's how my podcast, like I was looking for something and I was looking for some inspiration and like, how do you go and do cool stuff and how do you lead kind of a life that's not, the, the normal nine to five. And I, I've learned like every person I talk to, I learn from them. And so it's in the end, it's kind of a very selfish project because, because <laughs> it's just me trying to learn and trying to figure out like, how can I live a pretty fulfilled purpose-driven life? And all these cool people that I get to talk to are, are shining examples of that. Well, we're, we're happy to be along for the journey as well. I remember when I first started listening, I was actually trying to build a backpacking business that was really innovative. It was actually really cool and had it, it, it did really well in uh, the front range. And I remember uh, my wife's a teacher and I was painting houses in between jobs. That's how I got into it because I'd have that time painting. And and because uh, that that's what my family in Florida does. And yep. uh, I remember hearing your voice and I was like, oh my gosh, this guy has a, this guy sounds like he's from <laughs> where I live, <laughs> yeah, yeah, where yeah. I'm from. And that was one of the most surprising things about being out west is uh, the rural folks and the farmers and the ranchers and the hunters, they don't have southern accents, which I was so used to yep. growing up. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. So when I heard your voice, it, it kind of was like home. And, and I remember I really getting into the show and real and knowing it was smaller, like knowing yeah. it was small. And then, you know, I have taken breaks over time, but I remember recently just kind of come to the realization, maybe it was the Zapata Ranch, uh, the Strenuous Life Retreat coming up this year or something, where you announce it, I'm like, dang, this thing really took a turn for, <laughs> for like, and you did that, you've, you've obviously, it hasn't probably felt that way to you because it has been so incremental over time, but I'm sure there were moments that felt like, oh my gosh, I, I'm, mama, I made it. And at least uh, on the outside, it was like, dang, man, Mountain Prairie blew up. Where, that, when did that happen? All of a sudden, it just felt like it was big. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, th- there have been a few times, and I'm the last one to think it's um, a, a quality thing. Like, I, 
up until recently, like people would say they like it, and then I, I try to like argue with them about why it's not like no, you well, you, you know how the sausage like, is made. Yeah, I, you, I, you, I don't know what I'm doing. Like blah 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 blah. Now I just, I just say I really appreciate it, <laughs> but I'm still in my mind like God, I don't know what I'm doing. Like it, I sound like an idiot when I'm talking. And but yeah, I mean, I the right when I started at Palmer, probably like a month in, um, I got an email. And I, and it's this guy and he's like, Hey, I'm so-and-so from the Aspen Institute. And I was wondering if we're doing a four day conference about the American West for our top donors. And I was wondering if you could come up here and interview Hampton sides on stage in front of 500 people. And I was like, I thought it was a joke because the Aspen Institute in my mind for my weird interest is like the smartest group of people on the planet. And Hampton sides was my favorite author. He's a historian. He wrote like blood and thunder, ghost soldiers. I mean, everything he writes is unbelievable. And I thought it was a joke. And, um, next thing you know, like three weeks later I was in Aspen, like in the program, like in the book with all the, like Dan Flores, Hampton sides, all these like experts about the American West and, then, <laughs> and then me. And, uh, and that's when I, I realized I was like, all right, I got it. Like smart people who have no reason to be nice to me or being nice to me because of this thing. So I, it's, there's something there. And then there just been several things like that, you know, like that's that strenuous life retreat. I mean, I, I honestly didn't think a single person would sign up. I mean, I, I but it, I didn't have to put any money down. I, it was no risk to me other than embarrassment if nobody signed up. And so I was like, well, yeah, let's do it. And um, it sold out. And then, and then like I did a live show in Bozeman and um, I mean, I rented the theater. I put money online for that. But like I rented the theater. I, t- I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea and sold over 300 tickets to the thing. And, and like, it's just crazy. And, and that's not, it's not because of me, like the, the, um, the Bozeman event, I had four women who were just complete badasses, super cool. And people wanted to hear them. It's not like people came because of me, but it was just like, there have been these different, different things that happen, um, that have kind of forced me to realize, all right, there's, there's something cool happening here. But again, like I'm the last one to believe my own story. And so I'm, I'm constantly picking myself apart and <laughs> trying to always do better. <laughs> it's get, I mean, it gets better and better. You get more refined. I, re- I remember one of your more recent episodes that just blew my mind was Douglas Brinkley. Oh my gosh. Dude, that, that was a moment. I, was, that I didn't was know what moment. to expect because I'm looking at him and you know, you, everyone, you make a split second judgment call. Yep. And I see this dude that looks like he's, you know, a politician and yep. uh, on the, the picture. And I'm like, I'll check it out. But I read the description. I'm like, this sounds interesting. And then I dove in and Douglas opened up all. I'm like, I got to get all these books and read all this and just these stories. And there's so many people like they just took it so many more levels. The the, the depth of knowledge about conservation and the, and the history. It was so fascinating. That was one of my favorite episodes. No, he's that was a moment where I, I couldn't believe what was happening because he's, he's one of my favorite authors and his book, the wilderness warrior about Theodore Roosevelt was really important for me and my kind of journey towards conservation. And I mean, I've been following that guy for years and next thing you know, I'm at his house, like, like at his house in his live, like in his live, like little library area and we're recording and he's just hanging out. And I mean, in my weird world, um, I mean, it's like it's some bad. It's like somebody that likes basketball getting to go hang out with like LeBron James or something. That I mean, yeah. that's what it meant to me. And I'm not. I'm like a one of one in that category of puts the you know historians and authors on pedestals like that. But that's that's happened time and again with authors that I've 
admired from afar. And now they're like really my friends. Like Hampton Tides is like a legit friend of mine now. And he's just a really good guy. And everybody I've had on the podcast, truly like every single person has been amazingly cool. I'm not like best friends with all of them, but they're just, they're really, really good people. And they're the people I admire. And there's some saying I've heard people say like, don't meet your heroes or something like that. And I say, no, meet your, like I've met my heroes and they're all cool as shit and they make me, <laughs> make my life better. So, um, so yeah, I, it's, it's just awesome, man. It's, it's the coolest thing. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Is the coolest thing. Well, I'm still blown away by, you know, to, moving back east. I moved back to Florida two years ago. Biked around. Just kind of was out west a lot after school. And, uh, man, I just, I felt like I moved to the front lines of conservation. Like, I grew up here. Had no idea this battle was waging around me go and get this new perspective out west all the things you talk about on the show come back and it's like oh my god i have to be a part of this yeah and man i'll just be honest i i I cannot sleep at night wanting to be a part of this fight for Mm -hmm. conservation for land it it, right now it's land acquisition is the big battle it's just getting to that point where i'm like i have to do something were you there with real estate and then in Palmer, I know that you were kind of balancing the two for a while with different uh, uh, real estate opportunities, but it sounds like conservation was kind of, it was on the table a lot of times with a lot of these transactions, but it wasn't necessarily the, it wasn't guaranteed because of uh, the highest bidder. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, in, in the real estate business, it, it all comes down to the highest bidder. I mean, that's, and that's why these conservation organizations are at, at such a disadvantage because they generally move slow and they generally don't have the money available. And so it's, it's a, it's not really a fair fight between the two. Um, you know, I, I, to be completely honest, like I just wanted to do something that mattered. And, and when I got back from Costa Rica, <clears throat> I was looking at renewable energy because I, you know, my real estate experience, I could have been like one of the acquisitions people for like solar or wind projects. So I was looking at that. I was looking at conservation and I, I really just got into conservation. Um, I started getting to know the conservation community in, in Colorado. And I kind of slowly started understanding about all of it, understanding like the role that private land plays in landscape scale conservation. And it was kind of like this... I was able to combine my professional experience with this cause that was important. And that, you know, when you look at the population stats and the growth projections for especially the front range of Colorado, I mean, it's just, it's truly not going to work. Like no, it's, there's it's simply like it's not insane. enough water. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's no, it's not going to work at, at it, with, with things as they are now, um, unless something changes. And I just found the conservation community to be, a really cool group of people that were all very, very smart and they could be doing kind of whatever they wanted to do, but they were choosing to devote their time to this cause that they were so passionate about. And, and so it's not like when I woke up in the morning, I'm like, I'm going to figure out the water rights problem in Colorado. It, you know, it's not like I was just absolutely obsessed with it. It was more like, this is important work. I like all these people I'm working with. I can work really hard at it. I add value. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. Like from a fundraising standpoint, I was, I was pretty good at raising money. Um, 
But I think ultimately, if if I had been just obsessed with it, and and I know a lot of people that are, I wouldn't have stopped doing it to do the podcast. And I probably wouldn't have even continued doing the podcast because I would have been so all in on that. And so like, it was very, very, very important to me. But like, think reverse, reverse it. Like, like what if I was working like media stuff during the day? Would I have stayed up till two in the morning doing conservation stuff as a side gig? No, I would not. Like, and, and there are a lot of people that do, and I'm so thankful that they do. Just like there are a lot of people that are not, you know, they'll start a podcast and they're not willing to stay up till two in the morning editing or whatever. And so (laughs) they're not obsessed, they're not obsessed with it. And so Mm -hmm. I think ultimately to be good at something, to be able to get good enough at it, you have to be obsessed with it because you have to work extremely hard. And the only way you can work extremely hard is just to, to kind of not be able to live without doing it. And so like, while I'd love to say like, I was obsessed with conservation, like it was important and I worked really hard on it and I think I've made a difference, but I'm obsessed with Mountain Prairie. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I kind of had to go that way. Does that make sense? That does make sense. That does make yeah. sense. It's not that you weren't good at it and it didn't fulfill part of that, but it's like your target refined over time and yeah. your ability to hit that target did too. Up until, uh, up until now, like, like what I'm doing now, like, like that was the best job I'd ever had working at Palmer. I, yeah. I loved it. I mean, it was, it was important. I worked really hard. Um, I just, I, I loved it, but I wasn't obsessed with it. And I, in a way I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. I, I don't know. It's just kind of luck whether or not you come across what you're obsessed with. I a hundred percent agree. I mean, what, like I podcast, I mean, like, Mount the, the West podcast. I mean, I'm from Torborough, North Carolina, and I'm 45 years old. Like, like po- the whole thing is is insane that that's what I'm doing. But I just happened to kind of bump stumble across this thing and give it a shot. And after many years, it turned out that I I really liked it. And I, some people seem to think I'm kind of good at it. And I just I bust my ass on it. And but like, what if I hadn't have done that? You know, would I would I have found something else? I don't know. I think um, so. I think so. We, we, we've got, you know, we, we, we interview a lot of adventure athletes and, and doing big adventures and so many of them find the sport they're doing or the thing they're doing because of an injury or because of an accident or because of a cancer scare like you did, or, and, and that shifts the trajectory enough. And there's like, I thought I was passionate about basketball or about rafting, but really now it's, you know, I can't do that anymore. It's cycling or I can't do that anymore. It's just, it's just hiking. Yeah. And they would not have found that without something forcing them to. And there, to me, it's like, well, there's no telling what else is in there if you were exactly. forced to rearrange yourself again. So I I think it's amazing. Um, but, you know, if you were to relive your life and, you know, you wouldn't have sat down in Dallas at that air, you know, that seat or who knows what would Ed Robertson from, from North Carolina at 45 years old be podcasting. I don't know. But I think you would be. I think the the energy of trying to find what you love would would still be there. I hope so. I mean, just, I, I, it might be I different. So. You might be playing, uh, you know, it might be I don't know Harlem Globetrotter or something. Totally yeah. different. We'll see. <laughs> For anyone in the the listening that is wanting to make a change, and let's just kind of zoom out to basic you know principles that apply to anybody. What are some of those important things to keep in mind as they refine that passion or even try to find that passion. What are some of those things people need to just keep in mind and, and set their life up for trying these things? 
Yeah. I mean, I think number one is, I mean, it's very simple, but you just got to start doing it. Um, I, I've talked to so many people um, who want to start a podcast or they say they want to start one. And it's, it's all these endless questions about equipment and all this kind of minutia. I'm like, none of that matters. Like the only thing that matters is like, if you're, all I can say is what I did, but like, if you're doing an interview, interview based podcast, which is the only thing I know, you just got to start doing it. I mean, you just got to start talking with people and, and you need to have the equipment simple enough. So you're not thinking about the equipment and you're thinking about the conversation. Um, and so my advice with that stuff is start immediately, like, like right now. I mean, if you just have to, you know, hit the quick time thing on your computer or do it over zoom or whatever, like doesn't matter. Just, just start. Um, I think that's, that's the, the number one piece of advice is you just got to go. And then I think a, a mistake that I think some people make is, um, they instantly start talking about making money. And they just want to make, I want to make money. I want to make money. How do I do ads and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, like, all right, if you went to the guitar store and bought a guitar and you didn't know how to play guitar and you're going to learn and you're like, all right, I'm committed to playing guitar. Are you already like booking gigs at bars and like demanding that people buy your iTunes album and all this kind of stuff? Like, no, you're just, you're, you're, you're learning. And I think that like with the art set, you, you want to learn how to paint. Are you like, first thing off the easel, you're trying to sell it to somebody? No. And so I think with podcasting, I think it's important, at least the way I do it, to think of it as a creative endeavor. And it's something that you need to learn how to do. And it's not like people will be banging down the door to give you money for some art form that you don't know how to do, that you're learning how to do. And really the only way to learn how to do it is by doing it, just like playing guitar, just like painting. And so I think people, you know, you need to understand, like, if it's going to be good, it's going to be good because you're passionate about it and you're um, authentic. And in order to, it, that just takes time. And I'm a perfect example of like, I never, I never went looking for ads or money or anything. And then opportunities just started presenting themselves to me. Um, and so, you know, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't be going after it unless you're already famous um, or already have some massive following that, that will start listening and you can sell ads based on downloads. That, uh, if you can do that, you're probably not listening to me for advice, but, um, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I think, I, and I think ultimately you, you got to scratch your own itch. You know, I, I'm, I, everything I've done has been uh, based on the work of Seth Godin, who's kind of a marketing guru and, and he's not, not in a, in a slimy way or not a sales guy or anything. He's just a very smart guy about building, uh, building brands, building what he calls building your tribe. And I read his book called tribes and I read his book called purple cow and called Lynchpin. I've read every book he's had, he, he's written and he talks about having a minimum viable audience. And so, you know, you want to kind of figure out like, what are the constraints? You know, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, unless you're Joe Rogan, you can't just say, well, I'm going to talk to interesting people. You know, you got to have some sort of constraints on it. And so kind of, figuring out like, what is this niche that you're going to focus on? Cause if you, if you find the niche and if you do it long enough, you will attract like-minded people because of the internet. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And so my constraints are the American West. And, um, you know, that's a relatively big constraint, I think, but inter and, and I push it, you know, I mean, I've had people that live on the Gulf coast of, uh, Texas <laughs> on, but that's West, West of Tarbra. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's, 
bottom line, man, you just got to go. You just got to start doing it. There's a book by Adam Grant called Originals, and he talks about creative people and successful creative people and how much they produce. I mean, they put so much out and they've been doing it for so long. And, and, and so there's just a, it's almost like a, it's a volume game and it's a, a consistency game, refusing to quit, which is, that's one thing I'm, I can't say I'm good at many things, but in both professionally and like athletically, I'm really good at not stopping. <laughs> My dad calls it, you know, it's just, it's just digging a hole. You know, it's, yeah. it's not hard to do. It's just backbreaking. And yeah, you got to take a go, really man. long time. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's not always the most uh, mentally in- engaging. A lot of it, like you said, is editing at 2 a.m. There's probably one night a week at least that I'm editing till 1 in the morning and I, in this studio. And I don't get – I leave and there's no one on the road and a cop usually follows me home because they're like what is this person doing out in this small town you know if i'm at the studio that is or at my office and uh yeah man it's it's fascinating but um how about you mentioned one thing early on i want to see if has this played it all into it you mentioned one thing something that was important for to allow some freedom was being debt free would you say from like a financial or practical point of view how have what are some of those things that you've set your life up to to allow these things to happen yeah, I think debt free is huge, and I, I didn't fully appreciate that because when I was applying to grad school, I was prepared to uh, take out loans to go, and um, and you know all the schools I was looking at, it would have, I mean, it would have been well over a hundred thousand dollars, probably a lot, maybe even like one fifty or something, all said and done, um, to to go to school for two years, and then unexpectedly, um, I got the scholarship, and I didn't think twice, but, but seeing how things have played out afterwards, none of that stuff would have happened without, um, without that scholarship. I mean, I would have, Costa Rica wouldn't have happened, nothing. And so, um, the, 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 the person who picked me for that scholarship, I'm forever indebted to them for that. Cause it's really given me all these different opportunities. I think, you know, just kind of simple stuff, you know, living below your means, not, not just not being stretched financially. And I think when you think about creative projects like podcasts, not having to worry about making a lot of money uh, or making uh, money or having to having to make choices based on money will allow allows it to be a lot more authentic. And so that's why, you know, the first four, five years of mine before I made a dollar on it, I was just doing it for me. And like, I didn't have to say yes to anything because of money. And now I'm in a position where the money is important, but I've established a base. And it's kind of like, if anybody's interested in partnering in a business they they know what they're getting here yeah it's not like it's like and and i and i can be confident in turning down opportunities if they're not a good fit and so um yeah i just think getting stretched thin financially is just it's not good in in any in any aspect of life and so um yeah i mean it's pretty pretty simple stuff but i think from from a creative standpoint i think the last thing you want to the last thing I'd want to be is being kind of told what to do or having to make sacrifices or cut corners or change things up because of money Um, that I would not feel good about that. So you've taken this, you've taken this, uh, this leap of faith, another one and setting yourself up. It's been a good foundation. Uh, I know that you launched with a new podcast uh, with Ranchlands, and tell us like what's on your horizon. What do you know so far? I know there's going to be a lot of unexpected opportunities that pop up, but what do you know? What are you working on? And what can folks look forward to? And then 
take it a, just a step further with that too of what do you hope comes out of this new chapter yeah um my, my wife always kind of gives me a hard time because sometimes i just i, I will refuse to plan stuff because i'm like ah oh, you can't if you plan then you're you're cutting off all takes, these opportunities. Takes the surprise kind of, out of it. Yeah, you, know? you just kind of got to see where it all goes. But but now I I am trying to do a bit of planning. I think the the number one thing that I'm focused on um, right now and that I feel like a real sense of urgency with is um, I want to write a book and I'm work, I'm trying to work on a book proposal right now and kind of two different two different themes to the book. But one of them is just all the wisdom that I've gleaned from all these awesome people that I've had on my podcast. And I want to consolidate that that wisdom into uh, kind of a, a volume that can be that'll be around for a while. Because as, as much time as I spend on the episode notes, or as my my man Sam he he does it for me now. But uh, we spend a lot of time on episode notes, a lot of time on making Mountain and Prairie a resource for people. And but even with all that, it's the internet, and it comes and goes. And so there's just been so much great stuff and wisdom and inspiration and education that I've, that I've gotten from the podcast. And I want to go through and kind of organize it and put it into a book form. And one of my, you know, one of my dreams is to write a book. And I feel like if, if I, if I ended up checking out of this, this world and without writing a book, I'd be very um, disappointed in myself. And so that's kind of my number one goal um, in the next, uh, you know, maybe four or five months is to get, the proposal finished and hopefully get it in an agent's hand and hopefully it'd be awesome to have it sold, but I'm under no, uh, no illusions that that happens quickly. Um, I think there's, you know, when I look at different podcast people, I th- you know, I admire what Steve Rinella, I mean, he's, he's kind of the ultimate example of this, but he started as a writer and then started a podcast and now he's got, you know, this massive media company and I, you know, there's no, nothing of that scale in the future for me, but I do think there's an opportunity to, to kind of scale up mountain and prairie as more of a a media company. Um, I think there's a very, there's a huge lack of positive solution oriented, uh, media in the American West. I think the vast majority of it is all gloom and doom and everybody's real angry and just talking about everything's falling apart and calling people names. And I think there's an opportunity to focus on, um, solutions and so I think, and I think given the broad nature of Mountain Prairie, there are a lot of different ways that that could happen. And then I, I admire Rich Roll. I read his book a long time ago before he even started his podcast. And I kind of connect with a lot of his story in a lot of different ways. Um, and so I think what he's done has been, has been really awesome. And then I've partnered, you know, like recently I partnered with the Nature Conservancy to do an episode a month with them. And I think there are more partnership opportunities. And then I've got another strenuous life retreat this summer. And then I'm doing a river trip with uh, the Free Flow Institute through Green River Gates of Lador. We're talking about storytelling, talking about conservation history, a um, lot of different live events coming up. Um, so, it's you know, there's just a lot of really, really awesome stuff. And um you know, it's just kind of keeping all the balls in the air, but also focusing out on the horizon a bit, making sure I'm moving towards, towards something, you know, towards growing it. And uh, I'm, I'm not trying to make it into some big ass company with a bunch of employees or something. Cause that, that's what I, kind of what I was trying to get away from. Yeah, no, but I, I do think there's, um, there are a lot of different ways it could go. And again, like if anybody's listening to this, if I, I mean, I started with a, the cheapest microphone that you can buy from Best Buy. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. 
And so there's, if you're willing to work hard enough, there, there are amazing opportunities out there, I think. I, I think so too. I'm talking to you on a $50 mic. Hell and yeah. I, and I keep it a point to keep this mic going. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It really no, doesn't. It doesn't it sound, matter. And it sounds great. It sounds great because, you know, well, I got a room now that helps a lot, but, <laughs> you know, there's, there's folks to help with that. But, Ed, uh, last question, and then I'll let you go. But, like, I know you're a dad. How do you balance this is more personal too. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and my wife wants another. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh boy. Um, (laughs) how do you balance pursuing your personal goals with having kids that are also coming up in the world with their own interests and their own goals and, and just discovering everything for the first time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I remember when I was in your shoes, I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. So we're kind of on the same trajectory. I'm just a little bit ahead of you. Um, but when I, you know, having kids is, is the best thing in the world to me. I mean, I don't, I don't obviously, I don't, I don't know what I did or what I thought about or anything before I had kids because they, they are everything to me and they, they, everything I'm doing is for them. You know, they, there's, they, I mean, they, they are at the core, at the foundation of everything I do and think. And, and I mean, the whole reason I want to be better. And, and so I think, you know, the time thing is, is the, is huge because, you know, they, they just take so much time and they take, they take a lot of money too, you know? And so the, and so if, if for me, and I, I think I may be different than some people in this, but like for me having kids, it focused me in, man. I mean, it took like all this, I think about like some, like water, you know, going through some, like a, a braided river in Alaska where it's like spread out over like two miles, you know, like the river's like two miles, in, but it's, but it's like an inch shallow. And I think having kids is almost like you go into a canyon and all of a sudden all that energy is like really, really, really focused. And, and it just forced me to focus my energy to be much more efficient. Um, you know, when I'm at my best, I work really, really hard during the day. I'm very, very focused. And then when they come home and it's time to have dinner, I'm very, very, very focused on them and no phone, none of that stuff. And so kids have really, I mean, I didn't start any of my stuff until my first kid was born. Like, like I started my reading recommendation email list probably five months after she was born. And then I started the podcast maybe nine months after she was born. And so really everything, all the cool stuff for me started after they were born. And I was, I think I was 38 when they were born. And so I I really think whether it's consciously or subconsciously, like they, they force me to focus. They force me to pay attention and to be, you know, to, to be a good example and to work as hard as I can. Cause like, there's not, you know, to me, there's nothing more important than that. And it's, I was pretty late in, in the kid game. Um, but you know, it's, it's the most important. I think of it a lot like running an ultra marathon, like, like at mile 90 of ultra marathon, when you're feeling like sh- I hope I can cuss on this thing. Sorry, I've been using foul language. Yeah, it's, it's, it. uh, we, we get played in a lot of classrooms. So, <laughs> so like, <laughs> think about mile 90. You're, you're, you've, your legs are all cramped up. You've got blisters. You've probably thrown up a few times. You're possibly hallucinating. And if somebody arrived, some like deity came up and was like, all right, you can quit right now and I can have you on a beach in Costa Rica relaxing. You'd be like, no, I'm not quitting. Like, this is awesome. I love this. This is the best thing I've ever done. By any other measure, it's like uh, it'd be torture. And that's how it is with kids. Like when they're all going crazy and they're not sleeping or they're sick and it's just like pure chaos. If somebody came along, they're like, 
I can have you out of here right now and go back to being a single dude. And I'd be like, are you kidding? This is the best thing in the world. <laughs> and so that's what, that's how I think about kids. It's like mile 90 of an ultra marathon. <laughs> I, w- I will try to adopt that mindset because right now it drives me crazy. It um, does. It, it but is crazy. It's not a. I have to say I have not. My I've got such an all star wife that uh, she never tells me no. Like never. I'm really kind of like, are you sure I can go do this? If you let me do, like, I can't believe you're saying yes to this. I I just did not. What makes you better? It makes you better as a dad. You know. I'm very fortunate. That's how my wife is. Like when I'm training for a long race or something. You know. I mean, every Saturday morning I have to go out for seven, eight hours. And, and, but she's like, it's, that's what I need to do. And if I do it and I'm focused on it, I'm better at the stuff that actually matters being a dad. And so, um, so I get it, man. That's how my wife is. We should get our wives together and they can commiserate on their insane husbands. Oh my gosh. She would love that. <laughs> she, she would love to just bash me in that way. <laughs> no, this is great. Well, I, t- I tell you what, Ed, I, I can't thank you enough for the time, man. You've, you've been a mentor to me without knowing it. And, uh, you know, just from the book recommendations to, I love your good news from the American West newsletter. I share it with everyone I can. I just think it's such a brilliant idea. It's digestible. It's, it's like you said, positive. It's, it, it, it's, it's not ignoring that there's terrible things yeah. happening, but it's, uh, it moves me more to action than the negative news, if that makes mm. sense. So it That's moves me to more to want to take action and share those. I share those job listings with people I know in the area that are looking. I share, you know, any sort of, we, we donate a lot to trail organizations at Athletics. So a lot of times I see organizations we've worked with pop up on your list and I'll share that with our team. And it's just the negative stuff rarely makes me want to do something about it. it makes me want to sit there and sulk. Thanks for the time, Ed. No, thank you, man. And keep up the good work. You're doing really awesome stuff and you, you're, you're producing great stuff, but also how you're doing it. I just, I have a real respect for that because you're just grinding and grinding. And I think that's, as I said, like that's more rare than I would have expected. And, um, I just, I really appreciate it. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.